Okay, I'm glad you're here. I had an interesting experience. Just something totally out of the blue happened to me leading up to Shabbos yesterday. It was about 3 p.m. and I got a text from someone from the East Coast, from New York, who said, would you like to meet with Gad Elbaz? He he wants to meet with you. So for those of you who who know Gad Elbaz, he's a phenomenal Jewish singer, Israeli. He has uh, YouTubes with millions and millions of, of views on them. I think maybe his most famous song is a video that he did with Nisim Black, another um, amazing Jewish figure today. Hashem Melech, Hashem Malach, Hashem Yimloch Leilamved. It's and the production on this video is, is absolutely amazing. I think it's got something like 6 million views. And anyway, he's got many, many songs. Gad Elbaz, a, a great singer, very famous guy in the, in the, in the Jewish world today. So, so I've never met him. I don't know him. This was very much out of the blue. And it was like, and I was like, sure. So, so he said, okay, how about in 10 minutes? <laughs> and it was like, okay, great. Now, they, the, the person who, who asked me if I wanted to meet with him sent me this information about this tour that they're doing called the Shabbos. It's, it's kind of a play in words, Shabbos, like for the Sabbath, but Shabbos, it has the word bus in it. So they're taking this big bus with graphics about Shabbos and all sorts of stuff, and they're driving it cross country. And they're going to stop in all these places cross country and they're filming it and they're just going to like do like spontaneous concerts and meet with people and throw classes and and just do amazing, just amazing, just like spreading light, just running across the country, spreading light. That that That's the idea. OK, so so I get a call and it's like, OK, they're outside your house. Are you OK if they film it? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And I look out my window and I see there's like a film crew outside my house, like with a, a bunch of people, I don't know, like eight people or something like that with like like a boom mic on a big pole and like a camera and all the rest. And there's a knock at the door. And so this like, this crew comes in, including Gad and these DJs and, you know, producers and, and, and all this stuff. And, and so... So we're talking, and I got out a, a bottle of, of vodka, and we made l'chaim, and, and, and started talking. And I told them, I told them that, that this was an amazing thing, because I had this exact idea, like, 25 years ago, that, that we should make a bus, and we should paint the outside of the bus, and we should fill it with like musicians and teachers and we should drive across the country and just 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 spontaneously just bring inspiration to people. And they were like, really? You had this idea 25 years ago? And, and I remember details about it. Like one of the things that, like I was planning the flyer and one of the things I remember that I wanted to put on the flyer was a 100% guaranteed money losing proposition. That's like one of the phrases that I remember. And I remember another thing I said, and like as you're traveling cross country, like you're going to, it's going to be Shabbos a certain number of times. Like the Thursday night before, we should like make a big challah baking. And like people in the community can come and learn how to bake challah, right? And, and that will get everyone like really excited also for the Shabbos that's about to arrive. And 
and that'll be like that. That'll be like a, a, a great component, like that can be part of this. And they said, yeah, 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 we we have that idea too. We want to do that idea too. And anyway, it was the whole thing was just really super positive and and everything like that. And I have they they got very excited because I gave a class about I don't know like ten years ago, and at the end of the class. This older man who who wasn't even in attendance came with a, like this little pot, like a potted plant, like but really small, and 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 there was like this tiny stick coming out of the soil, probably like an inch high, and he he said to me, "Would you like an estrog tree?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, thank you," and and so so this estrog tree, I took it stayed about that tall, like maybe six inches high for about, I don't know, like five, six years, seven years maybe. And then all of a sudden over the last couple of the years, it's like boomed. I don't even want to say blossomed. It's boomed into this tree that's like 10 feet tall and gives off estrogen. So it's it's this crazy thing. So it's in front of my house now. So they were looking at this estrog tree in front of my house and they were like, this is crazy in Los Angeles. People have estrog trees in their front yard. And I said, listen, I have some seeds. Would you, would you like some seeds? And they, and they said, yeah. So I went into my house because I had just, with with the help of someone else, had just cut open this one of the estrogen, and 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 they know more than I do about this. There's a whole process. First, you want to kind of take the seeds out and wash them off, and then you have to let them sort of like dry and kind of bake in the sun and get like hard. Okay, so I didn't know about that, but these were these seeds are ready to go. These are like hard, crispy seeds, and I put a bunch in in a little Ziploc bag and I gave it to them, and I really hope. That when they go cross country, that they're that they're going to plant estrog trees across the country. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? And by the way, um, like I'm not a rabbi. What am I doing here? What am I doing? I like, like I don't. Sometimes I'll give a talk. I haven't done this in a long time, but years ago, sometimes I'll give a talk and I'll decide that, hey, I think that one came out well, and I'll make copies of it and I'll, I'll put it in restaurants, <laughs> like, and and one time I did that with a talk. I think it's the first time I ever did that with a talk, and like I I I I don't know what's happening from these things. You know, you put them on the internet. I don't know. Anyway, this was a, like a long time ago. This was like years and years ago. Like, I don't know, like maybe 20 years ago this happened. I heard from someone who heard from someone that they got one of those tapes and they played it over in their car and they just played it over for like six months. This same tape. They just kept on listening to this thing. And then they just got up and they moved their family to Israel. And and then they were shocked. They saw a picture of me. They said, we thought he had like a long beard and long pace. Like, 
like, and and I remember thinking, like, what am I doing? It's like I I feel like I'm just like, this is the reason why I'm telling you this story, by the way. I feel like I'm just kind of walking through life, just kind of like throwing seeds, like that's what these things are. I'm just like throwing seeds, just like kind of walking through life, just kind of reaching to a bag, just throwing seeds. And who knows, maybe a tree will grow. Maybe a tree will grow. Who knows? Who knows? Planting light. That's the way, that's the way it says it in the, in the Siddur. Or Zerua, planting light. And we can all do that. You know, every time you smile at someone, you're just planting light. That's what it is. Who knows what's going to grow from your smile? Sometimes you can change another person's mood. And then later on that day, maybe they were going to yell at someone, but they saw you smile and you just kind of altered their trajectory in life like two degrees with your smile or with your kind word, with your hello. And now they're not going to yell at that person. And now because they're not going to yell at that person, like more domino effects, like in every direction. So who knows, maybe they'll be planting esrogum trees like uh, like around the country. I'm going to text them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them that idea. I'm going to tell them to do that. Well, I didn't get to the point yet. As I was, as I was leaving, or as they were leaving, I should say, they mentioned, oh, this is the first stop we've made. And then they walked out of the house and, and then that was it. It was, it was like really nice. It was like really, it was really a special encounter. Just totally out of the blue. And the next day, I was thinking about it. That was their first stop? Like, it could have been that they started in New York and then they drove cross country and finished up in LA. That, that would have made sense. Or if they're starting in LA... They don't even know me. Why would I be the first stop? And then I realized something very special that was very moving to me. I think Hashem was saying, you had the same idea 25 years ago and you you weren't able to do it for whatever reason. But I heard you. (laughs) I remember Even if you don't remember, I remember. So we'll make the tour begin here. It's that's just God showing us how close he is to us. And to me, I felt that that was really reassuring and inspiring. And I think maybe a lot of us can relate to this and and maybe find strength in this that there's so many good things that so many of us want to do. And a lot of times just we're not able to do them for whatever reason. It just doesn't happen. But don't think that God didn't hear you. Don't think that that thought that you had and whatever effort you put in, whether it came to fruition or not, was worthless or disappeared. And who knows, sometimes maybe if you're putting something in the world that can help when it's actually time for it to come into the world, 
maybe it it adds a, an extra set of wings to that to that project that helps it get off the ground so so the closeness of god with that in mind i want to just use that story that experience as an introduction to to what i want to share with you now about the mishkan now everybody knows that the mishkan that's hebrew but the mishkan is was the the holy sort of traveling tabernacle in in the desert that was that was the shul that was our that was our house of worship in the in the desert and it was this miraculous entity it was a microcosm of a human being and it was a microcosm of the entire world and it, how could it be both well each person each you and me all of us are microcosms of the whole world that's why whatever we do reverberates throughout the entire universe that's why even if you're alone in your room, you say a prayer, well, you're a microcosm of the entire universe. The whole universe exists within you. And so what you do reverberates everywhere. Everyone's so important. Everyone's a piece of this. One of my favorite stories, just I can't, can't not say it, is, is something, I didn't hear it in connection with this. I'm applying it to this. But just this idea that a person is the whole world and a person is like themselves and both of them fit together in the Mishkan, this tabernacle was the whole world and it was each one of us individually at the same time. So how do we understand that? So so here's the little parable. A man comes home from work. He's dog tired. Like all he wants to do is just like slump into his chair and read the newspaper and like unwind. But he's got this little kid, and the little kid is so excited. His father's home back from work. He, he can't wait to be with him. And so so the father doesn't know what to do. He knows the kid wants to play with him, and, and, and he just doesn't have the strength. So, so he thinks of an idea, and he sees the newspaper he's reading. He sees that there's a map of the world, kind of complicated map of the world. And he, he thinks, okay, Here's how I can buy some time. So he makes a game out of it with the kid. He says, he says, look, I'm going to make a puzzle for you. So he takes the world and he rips it into lots of little small pieces and he mixes them up. And he says to his child, he says, when you can put all of this together back, then, then I'll play with you. So the dad feels good. He goes back to reading his newspaper. He feels like he's bought some time. And like moments later, the kid runs up to him and says, I finished. And the father can't believe it. How is that possible? And the father looks and in fact, there it is. The the whole world, everything's in its proper place. And he asks, he asks his child, how did you do that? And his son says, well, it was easy. On the other side, there was a picture of a person. And when I put the person together, the whole world fell into place. And so, and so that's what it is. That's what it is. That's, that's why any effort we put in terms of our own improvement, like just becoming a better person in any way, reverberates throughout the entire universe. You fix yourself, you fix the whole world. That's, that's the journey. That's how it's going to happen. So, 
So our rabbis tell us that the Mishkan, this building that we're talking about now, which represented the whole world and each one of us, that that it was a fixing for the golden calf, about what went wrong with the golden calf. So, so now we have to kind of figure out what's the connection. How, how what happened at the golden calf is, is the Mishkan a fixing for? So, so we've got to figure out what went wrong with the golden calf. And this is like a very rich area of Torah. There's a lot of Torah on this. But I want to just kind of like drill down. And, and these are some things that we've learned over the years, but I'm going to, I'm going to reach a new conclusion. Okay, so there's a new teaching ahead. So the idea is like this. The golden calf, the Talmud itself, tells us that the golden calf was a divine setup. So why? Why would that be the case? Why, why would God endeavor for us to do wrong? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and when you hear what the Talmud says, it's, there's a very beautiful teaching at the end of this. So basically, the idea is like this. The generation that received the Torah, it's called the Dora Dea, meaning the generation of, of, of Dea, of, of knowledge, of like divine wisdom. This generation, you would imagine, would be the least likely to do anything wrong. The ones who understood the best. And they were. And they really were. And yet, they make this golden calf like 40 days after receiving the Torah. So how could that possibly have happened? And why did God orchestrate that downfall? And we're going to get to exactly how that downfall was orchestrated in a moment. But, but why did God orchestrate that downfall? And we see, we see something amazing here. God wanted to teach all future generations that just like this generation fell and they were forgiven, so too our generation can fall and also be forgiven. Because who knew better than them? Nobody knew better than them. And if they can fall and they can be forgiven, how much more so can we fall and also be forgiven? Does everyone hear that? Now, now the Talmud then goes on to the, say the next statement, which is, maybe that's true. Because we always want to find ways of, of thinking that we can't be forgiven, <laughs> which is like, why? Why are we doing that? Why are we going out of our way to figure out ways that, that we're still in trouble? Like, that's strange, but that's human nature. So we think, ah, that's true for a community because a community at Seabor is very holy. But for an individual, a low life like me, I can't be forgiven. So, so the Talmud knows that we think this way, and the Talmud says the following that just like that was a divine setup in terms of us falling into making the golden calf, and again, we're going to get to the details of how exactly that happened in a moment, so too it's true for individuals that King David, David Amelech, fell spiritually with Bathsheba. Now, remember, Bathsheba really was his soulmate, and that union produces Shlomo Amelech, King Solomon, and the messianic line is from 
king from King David to King Solomon. Okay, because remember, David had a lot of sons, but the messianic line is through Shlomo Amelech, which means Bathsheba is the mother of Mashiach. Okay, so that's 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 very important for us to understand that that Bathsheba and King David really were soulmates. In fact, it says that this match was arranged in heaven during the six days of creation between the two of them. From the very beginning, God foresaw and had in mind the two of them coming together. So then what was the problem? They rushed it. They they entered into their relationship too soon. So just patience, patience. Someone could be the one, but just patience. It's got to be the thing at the time. Okay, so so David Amelech has a big fall in terms of his relationship with Bathsheba. And so, and yet God forgives King David. And so the Talmud says that it's also true of individuals. It's not just true of communities. It's also true of individuals. That if God can, that if King David, who knows way better than us, can make a mistake, and God forgives him, so too if we as individuals make a mistake, God forgives us too. Okay? So that's, that's very important. Or now I want to get into the particulars. So how is it that that this sort of divine setup, this this how, how did it happen? So the Talmud teaches something something like very amazing. It says that we were expecting King David, or rather, we were expecting Moshe to come down from the mountain with the tablets, and he didn't come down. And it was something like he was six hours late, something like this. Okay. So the Jewish people start panicking. But why do they start panicking? And here's the detail that the that the Talmud fills in. That the Satan, remember, we have only one power in Judaism. Like some religions have, it's God battling against the devil. Who's going to win? That's not Judaism. Judaism, it's only one power. And, and this energy of incompleteness, which we'll call evil for now, it functions in terms of a spectrum. And the Talmud says that the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, the Malach Hamavis, the angel of death, and the Satan is all the same thing. That's all different manifestations of the exact same spectrum of energy. Okay? And this is energy that we have to harness and refine in order to bring the world to its completed, perfected state. Okay? Because the world isn't finished yet. And this energy of incompleteness is the Yetzirah, the Malachamavis and the Satan, because all of these things, when the world reaches its place of perfection, aren't going to exist anymore. And this is what we work with. This is the challenge that we work with, the raw materials that we work with. Challenges, tests, opposition, obstacles, accusations. These are all the tests that we work with in order to refine the world and to bring it to its higher place. Remember, when the Satan comes to a person, 
it wants you to say no. That, that's, that's the conceptual breakthrough that, that, that a lot of people don't know. Because if it wants you to say yes, then it's a separate power. It's battling against God. It's trying to pull you to its side. But that's not what it is. It works for God. So, so it just has a job to do. So, so if, if you hear like a little voice in your head or a whisper in your ear, like, do this, the answer that that whisperer, right, so to speak, is looking for is no, is no. And it says that if you say yes to it, if you say yes to the Satan, that it rips its clothes and cries. And if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances because it's working for God. Okay? It's got a dirty job. Its job is to entrap you, but it doesn't want to entrap you because it works for God. Okay. So, now that we've had Satanomics 101, <laughs> let's go back to this idea of what happened at Mount Sinai. So the Satan, the Talmud says, shows the Jewish people Moshe's coffin. Do you know why he's so many hours late? Like, you think anyone can just disappear into heaven? Like, climb a mountain? Like, heaven comes down to the top of the mountain? He walks into this dark cloud? He walks into heaven? And he's ever going to come back? Has anyone ever come back? He's gone. He's dead. And there's the coffin. We see it now. Mass panic. Okay. So we know what we did. We, we, we made a golden calf. Why did we make a golden calf? And, and by the way, all the biggest rabbis in history, who, by the way, would be very happy to say the Jews did horribly here, all of them say that this was an idol worship which is an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing that they say that. What we were looking for was a replacement for Moshe. And just like Moshe was this sort of like intermediary representing us to God, we panicked and said, okay, we've got to fill Moshe's slot. Okay, we're going to make this golden calf. Now, like Kabbalistically, basically, there's this divine chariot, the Merkava. It's like very exalted and beyond me. And However, this chariot is, there's certain imagery associated with his chariot. And, and so, like, Kabbalistically, they say that the golden calf was, like, part of this divine chariot. And so it was, like, this very high intermediary, like Moshe was a very high intermediary, that, that, that they were trying to reconstruct in their own way an intermediary like Moshe. But they didn't think it was a God itself. That's important to know. But what's the problem? What's the problem? And this is one of the greatest things about Judaism. This is the truth of our lives, all of us. Jewish, non-Jewish, this is the truth of all of our lives. We don't need an intermediary. There is no intermediary. It's just us and God. It's just you and God. You don't need an intermediary. There is no place for them. They're teachers. They're exalted teachers. We need those. There's the Torah. We need that. But in terms of your connection with God, 
It's direct. No one goes in between you and God. I'll tell you something historical. It's related. It's related. There was a period in in Jewish history that we call the Enlightenment. And the, the Enlightenment, in, in Hebrew, we call it the Haskalah. And the Enlightenment is in sort of heavy, ironic co- quotations. Like in, in secular history, <laughs> the Enlightenment is like, but in, 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 in Jewish history, it's the Enlightenment. I mean, it's like, like, not such an Enlightenment, okay? And because it was a period of secularism. Okay, and and looking to science as the answers to all questions. And remember what the Rambam says, that the same God who made the world also made science. So there is no disagreement between science and the Torah. If you see one, you either don't understand the science correctly or you don't understand the Torah correctly. But they're created by the same creator. So there is no disagreement in it. It's just that we don't understand one or the other fully. That's all. So, so anyway, when the period of the Enlightenment came, there were all sorts of like secular movements and offshoots of Judaism that were sort of like deviations of, of what the way we had observed the Torah throughout history, modern movements. And, and, and so one of the things that was a product of the Enlightenment, because everything like about the Enlightenment was viewed like among the like religious community, among Jews, like very suspiciously. Even things that probably should not be viewed suspiciously were viewed suspiciously. And over time, they were like, okay, that's okay, we can do that. But, but initially, they were like, hmm, what's that guy up to? So let me give you an example. You ready for this? Eyeglasses. <laughs> Eyeglasses were viewed very suspiciously <laughs> because the people who were wearing the eyeglasses were also the ones who were like throwing away the religion. So since this, since like eyeglasses became the garb of the non-believers, since they were in that time what we call today early adapters to technology, this was like early adapters, like, let's have some eyeglasses. Like, like the religious Jews were like, hmm, I'm not sure about those eyeglasses. And then eventually they were like, okay, eyeglasses are good. We like eyeglasses. But, but you can understand just the psychology in that day, why they were viewed suspiciously. Okay. So, so... I heard in the name of a very big Rebbe that he saw someone reading the Torah with eyeglasses on, like a Torah scroll. And he, he was like, you let something come between you and the Torah? And man, after I heard that, when I have an Aliyah, when I'm called off, up to the Torah, the first thing I do is take off my eyeglasses <laughs> to this day. <laughs> to this day, like, how can there be any separation between you and the Torah? And that's the idea. How can there be any separation between you and God? There is none. There is none. But we have to know that. That's the thing. And now we're finally kind of getting to what I want to talk about. God gave us a big test by showing us 
the coffin of Moshe. We know what we weren't supposed to do, make an intermediary. That's what we did, unfortunately. The question is, what did God want us to do? That's the question I don't see anyone asking. I've never run across that question in any Torah book. What was God wanting us to do under those circumstances? And how does all of this connect back to the tabernacle? Because the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was the fixing for what we did wrong with the golden calf. We're going to get to an answer in, in, in a few moments. What did God want from us when he showed us Moshe in his coffin? And, and the answer that I'd like to suggest is the following. That, that we should have mourned, we should have mourned the passing of Moshe, the greatest human that ever lived. We should have mourned him, but we should have said the following, but God, we have you and you have us. And that's never going to change. And I think that that's what God was looking for us to say. That we should have, after our experience of receiving the Torah of Mount Sinai. Remember, God, the, the Talmud says that God spoke out the first two commandments. And after God spoke the first commandment, our souls flew out of our bodies. And then God had to resurrect us. Mass resurrection. Then God spoke again, and our souls flew out of our bodies again. <laughs> And God brought us all back to life again en masse. I mean, do you want to know why people are still talking about the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai? It was a pretty intense experience. And what is it that we saw when our souls flew out of our body? That not just in the physical world that there's going to be a Torah, but that the, in the heavenly worlds, the whole heavenly worlds are all also made out of the Torah that the entire world is made out of the Torah, both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. It's all Torah and it's all God. So we had a knowledge of God that was absolutely unparalleled at the time of the giving of the Torah. And now, 40 days later, Moshe's not coming back down. And God wants to check in with us and see, do we know that God never leaves us? God's like, okay, we're ready to take the entire world and humanity. Remember, the Talmud says that we reach the level of being one person with one heart at Mount Sinai, ultimate achdus, ultimate unity, ultimate togetherness. We made this vessel to receive the Torah. And by the way, I have to tell you something that Rav Frommer says in the Eretz who is, again, the Rosh Hashiva of Hachmi Lublin, the most famous yeshiva in the world. So he said that when 
We made the Mishkan, remember the Mishkan was a fixing for the, the sin of the golden calf, that it was made out of all the pieces of love from all the hearts of the Jewish people. Okay, it was one big, one big amalgamation, one big coalescing of all of the love of our heart for God, of our hearts for God. But but here's he throws in one detail that I've just been thinking about since I learned this. I, I I love this. See, Rashi says that at Mount Sinai we were like one person with one heart. But Rob Frimer says that when we all got together, we made one heart, and he said, and it was overflowing. <laughs> Do you hear the difference that that adds? That when we're all together. We're one overflowing heart. I think that detail makes all the difference. See, when I think of just that we were like one person with one heart, one heart is kind of self-contained. One heart is kind of just kind of, okay, we're all together, which is amazing. Like, that's amazing. And we're kind of taking care of each other. But an overflowing heart? One heart that's overflowing, that's dynamic, that's like just sharing with the entire world. That's awesome. So we were one overflowing heart. So, so again, God gives us the Torah at Mount Sinai. And now he's checking in. Forty days later, Moshe disappears. Moshe's dead. That's what we think. And God wants to see, how are you doing? Do you think the only thing that exists is me? And that you're part of me? And that whatever happens, I'm there? Do you that? Or or do you feel without Moshe there, you're all just going to become obliterated? That there's nothing shielding you from the divine light. And now I want to say something that I think is very, very deep. Okay? Listen to this. If I were to ask you, what was the first wrongdoing in the Torah? Probably most people who knew a little bit would say, when Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge. That's what I think most people would say. But that at the very beginning of the Torah, nature itself rebels against God? What, what, What am I talking about? On the third day of creation, God makes fruit trees. He makes all vegetation. And the fruit trees, listen to this, their, excuse me, their bark was supposed to taste like the fruit of the tree. Like that was the original divine design for trees. So Shane, I, I, I told you we're going to talk about trees maybe if we get there. So I'm, I'm glad we got there. So 
So do you know what? The trees rebelled against God. Isn't that wild? This is before, this is, this is on the third day of creation. Human beings aren't created till the sixth day of creation. And do you know why the trees didn't make their bark taste like the fruit of the tree? Because they said, because we're going to get eaten alive. We're not going to survive. People are going to eat the tree. <laughs> we're all going to disappear. There's going to be nothing left of us. And so this survival instinct is hardwired into nature itself. And where does that come from? Do you, what question Kabbalah is trying to answer? How does the finite exist within the infinite? Or, let's phrase it a different way. How can something infinite create something finite? Like, the power of the infinite energy should obliterate anything finite that exists in its midst. How can something finite exist amidst the infinite? It should just... So anything finite that's created, so to speak, is worrying like the fruit tree. Like, if I'm made out of fruit, they're going to eat me up. How can I continue to exist? Like, that question is wired into the essence of the existence of the entire physical universe. How can we exist without Moshe? You're saying Moshe's dead? What's going to shield us from the light? We just died twice. How are we ever going to come back? When you speak, we die. How can we continue to exist amidst you, God? But nothing's difficult for God. And if God wills it, then it happens. Whatever God wants. Even like crazy outrageous things. You've got approximately two and a half million people in the desert and they all decide that we want to eat meat. And even Moshe says, how are you going to do that, God? And God says to Moshe, is anything difficult for me? And then all of a sudden, like these flocks of quail, of all things, quail, flocks of quail start flying over and it says that they have so much meat that they get disgusted by it. So God checks back in with us. And this was the divine test, as I understand it. 
This was the divine test. Do you know that I'm with you always? Do you know that you don't need an, intermedi- an intermediary? Do you know that I'm always there? And that we can be in a relationship. Sometimes people say to each other in relationships, you're too good for me, or I'm not good enough for you. By the way, my my wife's sister said, if someone says to you, I'm no good for you, believe them. <laughs> That's just some good dating advice along the way here. So anyway, somehow God in his perfection says, no, 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 we can be in a relationship. <laughs> But I'm no good for you, God. I'm not good enough for you. And God's like, it's okay. I made you. (laughs) I made you. It's okay. (laughs) I know who you are. I know who you are better than you. And I'm saying we can be in a relationship. So, okay. So now... How is the Mishkan, how is the tabernacle, the fixing for all of this? Because what is the Mishkan all about? The Mishkan was, the Ramban says it was sort of like this traveling roadshow. It was this traveling recreation of the Mount Sinai experience. Just like we got the tablets, the Luchos at Mount Sinai, that's that's where they were housed, in the, in the Mishkan, in the Holy of Holies. And just like we saw miracles at Mount Sinai, every time you walked into the Mishkan, there were, there were miracles on display. So you had this divine Mount Sinai giving of the Torah experience every time that you went into the Mishkan. The Mishkan was, so to speak, this dwelling place for God. God obviously saturates the entire universe, every aspect of the universe. It's The whole world is just God, and God exists beyond this world. Remember, it's a, a heretical thought, it's heresy, to say God equals the world and the world equals God. Like, that's not Judaism, that's not Torah. Torah says God fills the entire world and exists dimensions beyond the world. Okay? So, so... He's within and also beyond. Okay? So, the idea is like this. The Mishkan was this amazing construct that existed among the Jewish people, and later it was going to become the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and it's going to be a sign of the Messianic era when the third Beis HaMikdash the third holy temple gets built. And that's one of the things that Rambam says on the checklist of whether this individual is truly the Messiah, he has to build the Beis HaMikdash. He has to build the holy temple. If he doesn't build the holy temple, might be a holy person, not the Messiah. Okay, we have a certain checklist of things that we're very critical about, whether this is actually the Messiah or just a pretender, that's another possibility, or just a very holy person, but not the Messiah. So, so the Messiah has to do, Mashiach has to do certain things. One of them is to build the Holy Temple. Now, the, when, why is that so important? 
because the Mishkan itself was this was this container, so to speak, which brought the divine presence in a revealed way among us. In other words, let's just make the connection very open now. God was showing us that he exists among us and that he's closer than close all the time. That was the test at Mount Sinai. That was the test with the golden calf. Even without a Moshe, do you that you have a direct connection with me? Do you that I'm there with you? And that's how the Mishkan was the fixing for the sin of the golden calf. When we made the golden calf, we said, God, we need an intermediary. We're not that close. And God answers it back by saying, no, 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 I am that close. And now how close I am, all the time. Okay, we'll stop here. You know, I, I do want to add one more thing. That's why I started off with that story. I debated in my head before I started talking. Should I tell the story at the end or should I tell it at the beginning? What was the story? The story was 25 years ago. I had this idea. A bus trip. Paint a bus. Put musicians and teachers and drive across country and just spread light. And then Erev Shabbos, I just told you the story, but I just want to tell it again, just because it's so crazy. I'm going to throw in an extra detail, too. I get this text, do you want to meet with Gad Elbaz, right? This super famous Israeli singer, millions and millions and millions of YouTube views. I was like, okay, like I don't know why he wants to meet with me, but okay. Comes to my house with a film crew, and... And and they just mentioned, this was our first stop. And then I was thinking afterwards, why, why was my house the first stop? And I think that was God telling me, you weren't able to do your thing, but I didn't forget that you wanted to do that thing. God's closeness, God's closeness. And then I'll tell you something. As I was thinking about that, my next thought was, and believe me, I'm not comparing myself to King David. Believe me. I'm just giving an example. I thought to myself, wow, King David wanted to build the Mishkan, but he wasn't able to in his in his lifetime. He wanted to build the, the Holy Temple, rather, in his lifetime. He wasn't able to. But he had a son, and his son did it. But they, but, and I was just kind of thinking about that, just thinking about a lot of things. Then later on that day, this is the next day, I wanted to learn the Medrash Rabbah on the Parsha, on Achremos. And I was surprised that I even had that volume because I don't have all the volumes of it. And, and I was really happy that I had it. And there, there are a few places in my house where I normally learn. And for some reason, 
I decided to learn at the Shabbos table, which is where, when I was talking with Gad, Gad and I were talking. And that wasn't going through my mind why I picked that spot, but I just decided, I don't know, for some reason I want to learn the Medrash Rabbah here. wasn't thinking about that at all. And I start reading about Nadav and Avihu and, and everything like this. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Medrash brings the teaching and King David wanted to build the Holy Temple. <laughs> but he wasn't able to build the Holy Temple in his lifetime. But his son built the Holy Temple. And I thought, that's crazy. I was just thinking about that. And here's this teaching coming up in in the most surprising way in this discussion about something else. And for some reason, I'm learning it in the exact spot where I was standing talking with, with, with Gad. And I, I never learn in this spot. So... So as Reb Shlomo would say, what do we know? We don't know anything. But at the same time, God knows. And it's enough that God knows. And all he's looking for us to do is try. Maybe we'll see the realization of what we're trying to accomplish during our lifetime. Bless us all that we should be very successful and productive and really be able to see with our own eyes those things that are closest to our hearts. But we should also know that there's this unbelievable divine mechanism that God himself set up in the world where he's infinitely close to all of us. And that whatever positive thought that we have in our head, God collects it and he treasures it and he puts it together. And who knows that it doesn't give wings to the projects that eventually fly. So thank you. Absolutely. And I'm just just kind of thinking that, like, isn't it crazy? This is really, this is like really nutty. Like, it's just popping into my head this moment. But this is like nutty. How crazy it is that our entire encounter, my encounter with this crew of people that are doing this thing, ends with me giving them seeds. Amazing. It, it, what a great metaphor. I mean, it's it's, it couldn't be if you like wrote it as a screenplay. Like you'd be lucky to think of that thought. And this just happened totally organically. And not just seeds. Seed to an esrig tree, which wow. if you want to get a little bit way out, like there's an opinion that the fruit from the tree of knowledge was an esrig. You know what I mean? So it's wow. like going all the way, all the way back. And we talked about fruit trees and <laughs> like... It's beyond. It's beyond. 